Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics, a podcast where we try to shine a light on the hidden figures and leaders transforming our country. I just want to start off by congratulating two of the people who have been recent podcast guests. Our most recent podcast was Summer Lee, who was running for the Democratic nomination for Congress in Pittsburgh. And as we discussed, facing three to four million dollars of attack ads against her. And then when an election night, when I, I actually told my, told my wife, Susan, I was like, oh, she's not going to win. Because the first uh, reports that came in, she was down 20 points. But it was the other county, the more conservative county. She kept doing better and better as the night went on. And then she caught up. And then she went ahead and she won that race by 500 plus votes. And Summer Lee is the Democratic nominee for Congress from Pittsburgh in a district that is highly Democratic. So she will likely be the next Congresswoman from Pittsburgh, the first black woman. So we just want to celebrate her and congratulate her. And I think we may have mentioned before uh, about the success of Khadija Babs. We had our, my niece, Courtney Teasley on, who was the campaign manager for Khadija Babs running for judge in Nashville, first time candidate, written off and dismissed by the establishment. And they organized and they prevailed. And so we just wanted to celebrate them and give them a shout out right up top. And also because of their early in their careers, and they offer decades of promise and hope and leadership for the country. So I'm excited about today's podcast discussion. We're going to be talking with someone who I met early in my career, very early in my career, when I was a college student at Stanford. I'm pretty sure he was working at Green Library, checking people in and out with checking their IDs coming into the library. And then I discovered he was an activist. And then I discovered he's like this renowned musician. And he's been a very significant, you know, leader and mentor and, and, and friend to me over, over a number of decades now. And this conversation I think is particularly timely as that we're wrapping up Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And we will be airing right around the time of the commemoration of the killing of George Floyd and all the protests around racial justice that um, ensued from that. And at that time, we did a podcast where we played a snippet of a, of a song called Song from Melvin Trust that our guest today had actually put together. We have the creator of that song, and that was a tribute to somebody who had also been a victim of police violence and a, and a song and a movement were really a plea for racial justice. So I'm really excited about today's conversation. We have a chance to reflect with somebody on, on his lifetime in the movement, talk about the Asian American struggle for justice, where we are overall in the country, the role of arts in advancing political and social change. And so let's get into it. And uh, Charlene, you're the, you're the big arts person, so I know you're looking forward to this. Um, and you've been Asian American much of your life. And so how are you doing? And are you looking forward to today's conversation? I'm, I'm super looking forward to today's conversation. And, um, you know, because it is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, uh, we are closing it out, but been wanting us to have a way to kind of recognize it this month with one of our episodes. So really looking forward to talking to today's guest. Francis Wong is an American jazz saxophonist, flutist, and Erhu player of Chinese descent. And we will get into describing what Erhu is for those who don't know. He's been dubbed one of the greatest saxophonists of his generation. By the late jazz critic Phil Elwood, Francis specializes in the fusion of free jazz and Asian music. As a central member of the Asian American jazz movement, Francis helped found the San Francisco Bay Area Asian Improv Arts label, and he's been featured on more than 40 titles. That's incredible. Throughout his life, Francis has used his art as activism. He's a youth mentor, composer, community activist, music producer, 
and college professor. Welcome, Francis, and thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to get into it. And I am excited because what we have today is really special for our listeners and different than we what we usually do on this podcast is that we are going to be talking to an artist and hearing some of your music. And we're going to be including some of your music into today's episode. And, and please let me know if I missed out on any other instruments you play. Those are the ones that we found when we were doing research. But if there are more, just let us know. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm really honored to be here and just really happy, you know, uh, especially Steve and I go way back. I remember uh, meeting Steve. I was one of the organizers of the 12th Congressional District mm. Caucuses, uh, Delegate Selection Caucus right. for Jesse Jackson. Mm. In 1984, and here comes this Steve Phillips, all of what 18 years old or something like that, and yeah, it was uh, 20 at the time, I think. Oh, yeah. okay, so, <laughs> 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 so it was a pretty, uh, what do you call it? It's one of those things where you just, it's, it's frozen in my mind seeing you come into that lounge at. Uh, I think it was at Ujama or something like that, right? All right. Yeah. So oh, tell, do you remember what he was wearing? <laughs> he wearing? <laughs> I actually think there's a photo that exists. I mean, I was like, I you know, a little Mr. Straight, you know, button up the one suit I had and trying to like, you know, whereas contrast that with uh, jazz musician artist <laughs> Francis who went to his brother's wedding wearing tennis shoes. So the nice. aesthetic has been different, but the mission has been similar. And Francis, by the way, I have a running joke, which is that we could turn our podcast into a bit of a drinking game where Jesse's name gets mentioned, you drink. And so you've already established the first drink by mentioning that reference. And But I love, I didn't know that story, particular story. I love it. So I just had to start it off, wanted to ask you that for someone who loves music like I do, and I wish I had stuck to an instrument, I, I don't currently play an instrument. I'm so curious, how did you get started playing music? And especially as a Chinese American, I will say the saxophone. How and why the saxophone? You know, the stereotype, I will say, is piano or violin. So I'm curious for you how you got started and how you got into the saxophone. Well, I did start out on the violin and, uh, <laughs> and um, you know, because it was meant to make me a well-rounded person. Yes. And so cultured, um, cultured. Yeah. And um, of course, I was excited to play an instrument because um, actually, you know, we're, we're immigrants. So mm -hmm. for my two older brothers, you know, they really didn't have a chance to uh, take music even in school. And so the family was doing a little bit better by the time I came along. And so my folks could go out and get me a violin for, I think it was $50. Uh, mm. We paid it on monthly payments. Wow. And then I could take the violin. So I, I, I you know, thought of it as a, as a privilege, you know. And uh, when I started playing, it sounded good. So because <laughs> nice. otherwise the violin's pretty painful. Oh, yep. I know my kids learning violin <laughs> in the beginning. It's like put on the earmuffs. I didn't realize that. And you got and you grew up in San Francisco, is that right? San Francisco area? Well, San Francisco. well yeah, the Bay Area. I was uh, I was born in San Francisco, but uh, when I was three, we moved to South San Francisco. Yeah. So I started out on the violin, but by the time I was in middle school, that's when uh, uh, the I played in the orchestra in middle school. But by then, was the beginning of the tax revolt. 
And so the uh, orchestra got cut. Wow. It was a budget cut and the orchestra Mm. got cut. But my music teacher uh, saw my talent. And at that time, they still had band instruments. And uh, he says, here, play the flute. And then here, here's a saxophone. Mm. You can play that. And since, you know, really, I loved the social part of music, too. And so I used to hang out in the band room after school and it so happens that the the music teacher was a a jazz musician so he would play us old records you know so that's when I heard Charlie Parker um, Coleman Hawkins and then he had old sheet music for the big band so actually um, I organized a a very small uh, jazz ensemble by the time I was in ninth grade and so That's how I kind of got involved in um, playing jazz and uh, playing the saxophone and improvisation and things like that. So that was that's kind of how I got started. Wow! So it was a resistance to the budget cuts and mm-hmm. and trying to take advantage as I as much as I could with the uh, the public school political program. roots right from the start. That's so fascinating. I've, I've known, as as I've known for almost forty years. I never actually heard that story before. It's fascinating. <laughs> so, right, so our paths crossed the context of politics, and so, and I, I, I know that you used to talk talk a lot about the imperatives and the competing kind of you know demands or pressures between politics and art. And I know it's something you wrestled with a lot, particularly in the eighties, in terms of pursuing your art versus being involved in the, the political struggle for social change. Can you talk a little bit about how you grappled with that and what were the things that you were that you were facing and what kind of decisions you made? Well, I guess I actually wouldn't have taken up music as a career if it wasn't for politics, because as I was moving forward in my journey, um, I was really part of the beginnings of the Asian American movement. And um, my older brother went to UC Berkeley, was in the third world strikes. And I got drawn in to the idea of making one's life as an activist. But as I got involved in the politics, I also became aware of the black arts movement and how that was showing the way to how integrate artistic expression into revolutionary organizing. And uh, of course, maximum black leaders like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, they're always talking about the importance of black music and the importance of music to the struggle. So that kind of kind of piqued my interest And it wasn't until I met John Jang where I kind of established a partnership with someone who could uh, show me the way to artistic excellence without being uh, necessarily drawn into the, you know, institutional side of music making. However, political organizing, especially, uh, well, for me in that period, I I consider myself a full-time organizer. So... It was something that I wrestled with in terms of how to balance, you know, my commitments providing, because there were certain things that people relied on me for in terms of leadership, whether it was in student organizing, I was involved in labor organizing, because at, at that time, as being an activist, you you kind of did 
what you were asked to do. And then even growing up as an Asian American, I didn't necessarily have this idea, well, I want to be this, I want to be that, you know, and I certainly my parents were not advocating for me to have to go my own path. Mm-hmm. So oh, oh, really, I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So sounds familiar. Yeah. So, you know, it, it just it took me a while and it was really the encouragement of folks in the movement uh, to say, oh, you have something to offer there. And I had started to have comrades, you know, like John Jang, Glenn Horiuchi and other folks. And then we had this real um, warm invitation and warm reception from uh, African-American artists such as James Newton and, uh, well, later on, Max Roach, in which all of a sudden I felt some responsibility to carry on the revolutionary traditions in the music, you know, and then that, that, was, that was calling me. And I, I believe that if it was just on me, you know, uh, I probably uh, wouldn't have become a musician. I, I would always love music, but I probably, because uh, at the time I was thought, oh, I'm going to become an economist. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, or, oh, you know, and work funny. in policy or something like that. So, mm-hmm. so that's kind of how I ended up working it out, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting you were mentioning the Black Arts Movement. I think just for our, for our listeners, don't tie together some of these threads. And so one of the leaders of the Black Arts Movement right, was Amiri Barak out of Newark, New Jersey. And, Jersey. You know, Yes. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting Jersey you're a Jersey person. I don't forget. Don't <laughs> I know, forget. I know. Jersey I don't think you do that. Well, I think it was a Berkeley person. Oh. <laughs> so sorry. I didn't mean Jersey that as an roots. insult. <laughs> but Francis and I did, you know, we worked with the Mary Sam and around some of the art stuff and the politics stuff of the 80s. And he had played a very big role trying to translate Black Arts Movement into a political force, um, particularly in Newark, and then also largely with the um, National Black Political Convention. Um, which did help to propel the career of Ready, Drink, Jesse Jackson. Um, but uh, back to Newark and, Mar- and Mary, so that, that, that a lot of the political tradition, a lot of the Black art tradition in this country um, comes out of that work. So then you have Cory Booker, who comes out of New Jersey. He was the mayor of Newark and really tried to offer you know, his uh, leadership around issues of justice and equality in the country as the mayor of Newark. And then when Corey left to run for Senate, he was replaced as the mayor by Roz Baraka, who's a Mary Baraka's son, who's the current mayor um, of Newark. So you have these kind of threads that have played themselves out out over the decade. I just wanted to ask uh, Francis real quickly, if you're willing to answer, is how did your parents take it when it was clear at some point that you were on this journey to be essentially organizer, activist and artist? Well, it was, uh, it led to some very difficult years, you know, mm. and so um, I remember I, I came home from school on a weekend and because uh, I went to Stanford and, you know, I could come home at South City, right? And I said, oh, I'm going to change my major. I'm going to, you know, study, I don't know what I wanted, sociology or something like that. And uh and I'm interested in that. I'm not going to become a doctor. And so my uh, parents cut me off at that point. <clears throat> wow. And so mm. actually <laughs> that led to a whole 
uh, what do you call it, kind of series of events where I had to move out of the dorm. I didn't really have a place to live, you know, and um, pretty much through most of my sophomore year. And so, you know, I was uh, I was kind of couch surfing for the whole year and basically fought with my parents for that whole year. And while they didn't accept it, they, uh, I don't know, I remember this one time they, they, uh, I came home and I opened up my trunk and I had all my bedding, you know, my pillows and my blankets and my, you know, and a suitcase and stuff. And this is, what are you doing here? And I, you know, and then, so I think they didn't really want me to, to live like that. So at least they accepted that at, at that time. But, you know, I was pretty stubborn and I was pretty committed. So I stood my ground. Yeah. I stood my ground. Good for you. We should start a therapy group. You know, I, um, changed my major without letting them know from accounting. And I was in an undergraduate school of business that was really kind of competitive to get into that. My mother was an accountant, so that was acceptable. And I switched it into journalism and I wasn't going to tell them, except that I kind of won an award for journalism. So they got a letter (laughs) congratulating them. And um, my parents were all, yeah, not pleased, had to switch it back. And, you know, was also kind of, you know, not, not easy, not, not easy to be in that position and, I, I, I definitely, as a parent now, I get it, but uh, definitely a different generation. And different. I switched out of pre-med into African-American oh, studies. Look at so. that. Here we all are. Francis, I got to see a great video of you of a recent event. You were at a community ritual earlier this month in honor of the 140th anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act. You played this beautiful song, Pie Yesu, from Gabriel Fauré's Requiem. And we're, we're going to play a short clip. I do hope that uh, listeners will check out that video because it's not only just footage of you playing the soprano saxophone. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, uh, I looked it up because I knew it wasn't a, a regular saxophone. <laughs> and um, But you played beautifully. But this video is interwoven with photos, documents, and snippets of descriptions from people submitting, I think, little stories about their parents or grandparents, um, probably their grandparents, early, essentially li- stories of early Chinese immigrants to this country. And I just found the whole piece really compelling and moving. I wanted to ask you why you chose that song to commemorate the anniversary. And what were you trying to convey in performing that piece? Well, you know, my part was just part of a, like you said, a community ritual, because one of the things that artists do these days are, uh, is um, we kind of call it a community practice where we weave in community participation and art making and altar making. Cause it was, there was an altar that was a lot of these pieces that you saw in the video were, you know, brought up and put on the altar. Oh, and, okay. and so um, the artist, the lead artist for the project, um, also her name is Summer Lee. <laughs> she, <laughs> she requested that particular piece of um, foray, you know, because it's, it's, it's a requiem. And then I just added on as a coda, uh, we shall overcome. 
mm. to to the performance uh, as a way to you know make the bridge between that European tradition and then the reason why uh, you know immigration quotas were done away with in 1965 was because of the civil rights movement. That's right. So, That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, beautiful piece. Oh, I wanted to dig into that a little bit in terms of you say deciding to add on the that we shall overcome piece. And you mentioned before, you know, your partnership with John Jang has also been a long time. He's worked with you in you know, Asian improv arts and has been a you know as a major pianist and jazz leader within the country. And then John had gone to Oberlin, right, conservatory, in one of his first albums, right, isn't his, he has a picture of his hands poised over a keyboard with handcuffs on them. That's right. Right. And so this issue of the, how do you grapple with the artistic tradition and expectations and also have inject your politics in it? That's not really something that's taught. I think that's like, oh, here's something we'll add in, we shall overcome, how did you kind of come to that level of creativity or integration or even confidence to be able to chart your own kind of you know voice in that way? Well, the thing that we always uh, you know refer to as some models for ourselves uh, in music was something that Thelonious Monk said, uh, a great pianist and innovator said, "Be yourself." And then I think there's another. Uh, thing that Sun Ra, I guess, I think yesterday was Sun Ra's birthday or something like that. And he's an important innovator. Actually, really, the beginnings of Afrofuturism is related to um, his his legacy. And he said, well, there, there's no his story. You know, there's, there's our story. Mm. So it's having a certain sense of mindfulness about always knowing who you are, who one is, and then the music that we choose to play to represent that. And then that's why improvisation is so much a part of our musical practice. Mm. So we can actually choose what we want to say in a particular moment. And that's a very significant part of how we uh, make history is because we are given the tools by the masters and the tradition to make a moment you know, that moves people. So on that, on that point, like it, where have you come to in terms of, cause they're very, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but just to, to kind of tease that out a little bit more politics and organizing are very demanding in terms of time and energy and effort and becoming a great artist is very demanding in terms of time, energy and effort. What do you see as like the, the, the role of art in that struggle for social change? And then for your own, allocation of your own you know life force and time and energy well i think that when we say social justice uh, well you know I, I come from the revolutionary tradition so when we're talking about social justice we're not talking about it in the abstract mm-hmm. we're trying to bring about a form of governance a form of community leadership and all that that we can have the power to uh, realize, uh, you know, our own images and realize a, a, a society in our own image. And that means we got to organize it and we have to, you know, people have to get elected to office. We have to have the skills to make these things happen. And how do we uh, make visible the society that we want mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. in our practice today? And one of the few things that I know that I can 
do in terms of making the future visible now is through a piece of music mm. and a piece of art, you know, whether it's plays or paintings and, and, um, and in a lot of ways, you know, there's, I guess there's a, um, a quote from Octavia Butler, the writer, Afrofuturist uh, writer, where she talks amazing about writer. <laughs> writing, I love writing ourselves into existence. Mm. And so um, as a composer and a musical creator, I believe that we're writing and we're our uh, future into existence. And without that vision, I think that it's very hard to wage the long-term struggle that we must wage to achieve that in this uh, in our society so there's an aspect of it which is has to do with okay playing my instrument and writing music but there's a whole lot of organizing that has to be done because uh, i don't think people realize how much of the state apparatus you know of the state is you know directed towards education culture and so in some ways we are uh, having that new society in the making through our arts organizations and our, if you will, insurgent institutions, you know, that whether it's nonprofits or community grassroots arts organizations. So it's just a different kind of organizing with the idea of um, making the vision visible today. Um, I'm really just particularly fascinated as uh, your part of the journey and how a, as you've noted in interviews before, how much you were inspired by some really leading African-American artists, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, and that you, in 1999, with your company, Asian Improv Records, you released an album with Max Roach, the legendary mm -hmm. African-American jazz player, mm -hmm. and he was a pioneer bebop in the 1940s. And I want to ask you a question, but first I want to play a clip. You had a performance at the API Cultural Center in 2011 in San Francisco. And again, you were with composer and pianist John Jang. Uh, the two of you performed with bass player Marcus Shelby performing Meditations on Integration. And that was in celebration of African-American history and Chinese-American history. So let's just listen to that. talk about the multiracial unity that you found in jazz and how that translated from the art of the music into, and especially during those moments and those times, the politics and movements for social justice. Well, I think, you know, since we were talking about Max is that, you know, he was an internationalist. I, I remember like one of his uh, albums he made with um, Archie Shep called Force. And there's a picture of a, a black fist rising out of the sea. Uh, and um, and then there's a picture of Mao Zedong swimming in, in, the, in the river, you know. Oh, wow. So a lot of what, what Max talked about, and I actually a lot of 
African-American musicians of his generation talked about how they were inspired by um, what was happening in China at the time. And the fact that there was a certain amount of support for the Black struggle. And a lot of the support was gained from traveling around the world and really seeing our struggle as part of an international struggle. So that sense of internationalism on uh, Max's part, you know, he saw uh, John Jang and me and, and just really wanted us to be part of what he was doing. So there was a certain amount of um, an invitation. And there's, there's also previous, there are precedents, you know, because I don't know if um, there's this poet, Langston Hughes, you know, he wrote a uh, he went to China, actually, during the revolutionary period of the 30s, and he wrote this piece called Roar China. And there's this sense of that, well, kind of the, the roots of third world, what we called third world solidarity back in the day. you know. And so I guess there's this uh, sense among leading innovators of the music of this internationalist perspective. You know, John Coltrane was among them as well. And that really opened the door and made it possible for Asian Americans like myself to see, hey, I could be myself in this music, you know? And uh, I could, like I was mentioning before, we can write ourselves into existence in this music. And we are gonna be supported by innovators and leaders in this music. Because we're invited, we have a responsibility to carry forward. And that really motivates me to this very day is that I have a certain amount of responsibility to do this. It's not really about personal expression per se, but, you know, fulfilling a sense of a mission to do this. Yeah, I still totally remember when you guys were doing the work with Max Roach and you brought him actually in to meet with me and Emi Gusakuma to try to see if we could help some of the legal work around what you guys were trying to trying to put out there. And I'll never forget being in this meeting with him in a conference room with you guys and with Emmy. And he had like two pens in his hand. And then he started like drumming on the table with his pen. It was like so <laughs> innate in him. It was just that really is an incredible powerful. image. I just got yeah. my image. He's so legendary and that yeah. you have that experience. I'm yeah. jealous. That's amazing. It was amazing. Um, so first, I want to ask about the about Asian improv arts, right? Which is, which is kind of the really kind of how you came to the, to decide that that was the thing to do, right? I mean, a lot of art is individual. Um, but then how do you get expressed out into the world? And so you and, and John Jang, and then, you know, Vinay has been a lot of the organizational backbone of that, have done, decided to create this label, right? You produced more than 70 recordings, hundreds of concerts, um, lots of different artists released their music under it, Glenn Horiuchi, Mia Masayoka, Jeff Song, Mark Izu, Jenny Lim, many, many others. So what led you to create a record label and then i think you're getting ready to transition out of it now so kind of where, what are your reflections looking back on um what you what you've built i mean since we were talking about max i mean max roach and charles mingus who was the composer of that meditations on in integration they started their own label because they were frustrated with the fact that most of the labels were white owned and they could not necessarily record the music that they wanted to record and put it out into the world. And so that vision, it, it was called debut records. Mm -hmm. And that vision really inspired a lot of artists to 
see, okay, this is how we express our self-determination is by making record labels and organizations whose mission it is to carry forward what we want to do and what we want to say and who we want to do it with and to uh, establish some sense of autonomy as artists in the making of our work. And so in particular, Asian Improv Arts was uh, inspired by the uh, Black Arts Movement Organization uh, Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. And this idea that we are going to have a movement that is going to encourage leadership by Asian Americans and to carry on that idea of self-determination. So that's why the first record was The Ballad or The Bullet, which is a play on Malcolm X's The Ballot or The Bullet. Right, you know? right. So yeah, so the idea is that it's it's organizations and movements, you know, not only are change society, but also are the source of strength for artistic creativity, particularly of uh, communities of color. And so that's really fueled our passion and fueled our effort to build uh, Asian improv arts, you know, a record label, nonprofit organization, and then affiliated community-based organizations and all that. Mrs. you got a performance this Memorial Day weekend, yeah? It's uh, this place called Bird and Beckett. It's uh, a bookstore and record store in Glen Park. And, and um, my understanding is you'll be playing a piece called Joseph Pierce, and it's inspired by the Chinese-American Civil War veteran who went by the same name. And by the way, I was fascinated to learn um, and to be reminded that we just don't learn about and think about veterans of Asian descent who served uh, in the Civil War. But the performance is going to be titled Miyoshi sketches, and it's based on John Miyoshi, who was a family friend of your father's. He was a Japanese American World War II veteran. And you'll also be performing other compositions celebrating Asian American contributions to social justice and peace. How do you choose pieces that you perform? And do you go in thinking about messages you want to convey to the listener through the experience? Well, the Joseph Pierce piece, you know, you know, I learned of his story through the work of Chinese American historians like uh, Ruth Ann uh, Lum McCunn, who um, talked about just really something, uh, really an untold story of uh, Asian Americans in the, the Civil War. And this particular story of uh, Joseph Pierce, who I guess one of the, uh, one of the accounts is that he was sold as a slave to a ship. Uh, captain and then when the captain came back and he was in Connecticut and he was able he got his freedom because Connecticut was a free state and then he chose the name Pierce because that's who the president was at that time so oh. there's so there's these stories wow. of uh, and then you know what does he do he's 20 years old and he volunteers to the 14th Con uh, Connecticut infantry and his first battle is the Battle of Antietam and you know which is the i guess it's still the single bloodiest day in terms of casualties and uh, he was wounded but as soon as he uh, healed he went back <clears throat> into the army and fought at gettysburg and actually exhibited a bravery in the face of uh, pickett's charge and so just this image of this uh, chinese american immigrant taking a stand and really 
choosing that as you know one of uh, as a story that I think that we can base our participation as Chinese Americans in the society you know on that rock that was uh, set down by folks like Joseph Pierce you know and then then I kind of thought about the music of the period you know and I, I wrote this in three it's a little bit like um, this three feeling like the battle hymn of the republic and in particular you know I wrote this that piece during at the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement back in 24, I think 2013, 2014, as a way to kind of say, hey, this is what it means. This is what it means, you know, uh, and how, it, you know, in some ways, that's why I resonate with uh, Steve, your upcoming book about the next civil war. And so mm, how we win the civil war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just kind of that's kind of how it was my process in, in making this piece. As far as to emphasize uh, that, you know, as Chinese Americans, we have taken a stand and we will take a stand uh, for freedom in this country. Long, long, uh, a, a very different message than model minority myth that the, the mainstream media likes to Absolutely. Uh, promote. So, so inspired. And I'm learning so much, mm-hmm. so much about Asian American history just in this one conversation. Yeah. Things I didn't even know before. So we're we're almost at the at the end of the time for the pod, but Francois, I'm curious what's next for you. Right? I mean, you 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 know built and you've done leading Asian improv arts for really decades now, right? So you're going to be stepping away from that. And so, wh- what are, what is the next chapter looking like in terms of what you're going to be focusing on? Well, a lot of what I'm going to devote my time now is to looking at the legacy because a lot of the uh, we've just done the work. And as with a lot of things, we do the work, but we don't necessarily leave a trace. <laughs> mm. And so I'm going to be spending time um, writing uh, memoirs about my experiences and kind of how I lived this life. And then to tie it together with, you know, having a better cataloging of the achievements of my, um, you know, fellow artists and how we were inspired by the movement all these years and as a way for, uh, for, you know, current and future generations to, you know, have some, you know, I don't know, templates for uh, how to carry out the organizing in the future. And then, you know, just how we just have this long history, you know? So when I think about Joseph Pierce, you know, uh, that means that he stepped up to fight against slavery. And so, we have a, a long history and we have a proud history and we should be uh, celebrating and uh, be inspired by it. Well, right you, on. yeah, I mean, you, you have <laughs> always understood the moment and tried to respond to it with, you know, both your talent, your direction, your leadership. And, you know, I know I've benefited from that. So I just really wanted to, Thank you for that, and salute you for the what you've been able to put together and do all the to do the over these years, and and also look forwarding to the to the cataloging and the and the legacy work as well. So, thank you so much for joining us, Francis. Well, thank you for having me, and you know, of course, Steve, you're one of my longest standing friends and comrades. Our friendship has really given me a lot of strength and support for all these decades. Well, it's definitely mutual. 
I want to find. Can we find some old photos, please? Can you guys dig around <laughs> archives? No, but I want to post some. Let's post some. I got to see. We'll look, we'll look around. Right. <laughs> all right. So that's uh, all the time we have for today. It was really a walk down memory lane for me. And really glad we were able to share Francis's work and leadership with um, all of our listeners. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Francis on Twitter at Francis Wong SF. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy and Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyandcolor.com. Democracy and Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. We will leave you with some more music that Francis has created, excerpt of the Miosi sketches. Until next time, keep the faith.